Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode, Jack and I sit down with Jim Carzan, founder, CIO, and managing principal at Kai Volatility Advisors, for a wide-ranging discussion about the economy, macro-related themes, structural inflation, volatility, structured products, the importance of thinking and probabilities when investing, and much more. Jem's past episodes have been some of our most widely watched or downloaded, so we were excited to have him on to get an update on his latest thinking and learn about what he sees on the horizon. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Kai Volatility's Jem Karzan. Jem, thanks for joining us today. Great being here. Thanks for having me. We wanted to have you back on to talk markets, macro, the Fed, inflation, tactics, I think some long-term perspective, and I think what, you know, what investors can sort of learn as they think about the markets uh, earlier in the year here. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's like the leadership has gotten narrow again uh, after, you know, a pretty strong fourth quarter for stocks across the board and risk assets. Um, and so I think this discussion will be an interesting one and one that our audience um, can sort of learn and grow from. And, you know, I think a Jack had mentioned to you, I think both in 2022 and 2023, the chats we had with you were, um, among the most popular, uh, both on our YouTube channel and uh, on download. So we really appreciate you coming back and talking to us and our listeners, because I know they enjoy it. Again, great being here. I really enjoyed the conversation last time, looking to build on that. And, uh, again, always insightful questions. So excited for the conversation. So maybe let's just start at sort of a broad level, but we can kind of open it up with, you know, inflation. So inflation has come down since you were last on, but it is kind of somewhat sticky. Um, But at the same time, the economies remain pretty resilient. Consumers hung in. Uh, So just in general, like what's your overall take on the macro landscape right now? Um, And has your thesis changed at all over the past 12 months, let's say? Yeah, I'm always on the outlook for a counterfactual. Uh, one thing we don't do here as traders, if you're a good trader, is be dogmatic, right? That's how you get hurt. Um, <clears throat> that said, I haven't seen a counterfactual. Um, very much I believe in, in the structural realities of inflation. I think an important framework to think about uh, what's going on is really this, uh, and I've tried to be pretty clear about this in a lot of the conversations I've had, is, is this structural inflation that's happening versus the cyclical uh, disinflation that, that's kind of countering it. And, and, I, and I think most people think about as inflation as one thing. Right? It's very simple. It's, are we having inflation or are we not? No, it's not that simple. What do I mean? I think going to not spend too much time on this, but to, to, to really focus. Structural inflation is a function of rebalancing uh, things that are happening under the hood, right, that are causing inflation um, at Whereas cyclical is really about what's happening to GDP and economic growth, right? And for about 40 years, all that mattered was the cyclical inflation. And that's why people have gotten so simplistic about what matters, because we had the same structural trends, which were disinflationary, which the cyclical pressures could just battle against. The Fed could have basically right puts whenever it wanted, uh, stimulate lower interest rates, and that would... Uh, increase longer-term disinflationary pressures, which were driving that long-term disinflation, 
but it would slow down, uh, sorry, accelerate the economy, I apologize, in the short term. And uh, what's happened now is that we have structural inflation. And that really is a function of a rebalancing of inequality, all the populism uh, you know, trends that I talk about. And that is a function, actually. It is a pendulum swinging back from all the Federal Reserve monetary policy effects that have driven that inequality. There's a generation uh, where many, several generations, now 40 years, millennials on down, that, that, and we've talked about this before, um, that, that feel like the system is broken and doesn't work for them. And now they're becoming a voting majority slowly every four years. And so that structural inflation, which is labor rights, protectionism, deglobalization, right? Um, <clears throat> increased costs of commodities as a function of competition and, and resource scarcity. All of these things are not, have nothing to do with GDP and cyclical effects. They have to do with rebalancing effects. Money going to the poor means 100% velocity of capital. One, a velocity capital of one, money going to the rich means uh, much, much lower velocity again. So those two effects are in contrast. And the Federal Reserve is cyclically, because they only have one tool, monetary policy, cyclically trying to dampen the inflationary structural. But in the process, they're doing the exact opposite of what they used to do. They used to, uh, to create disinflationary pressures. Right Now they're actually, by raising interest rates, they're cre creating more long-term inflationary pressures. And they have a very, they're going to have a very hard time countering those inflationary pressures. And it puts the Fed in a box. Um, and that's how we got into stagflationary environments in the past. And that's where I think we're heading um, as we are now. But I'll, I'll leave it there and we can dive in. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because, you know, the, I don't know, the past like 15 or 20 years, it's like a lot of times, you know, you hear the Fed is the only game in the town and they have this wide, massive influence. And of course, they... They do, but you know, if these structural inflation pressures are here, here to stay, you can certainly see how the Federal Reserve has less influence on maybe that higher level of inflation that might be here. They have a dual mandate, right? Uh, pretty simplistic. It's that easy. The economy is just two things. It's an unemployment and uh, price stability. Obviously not, but that's how it's constructed, right? And, and inequality doesn't matter to them. All these other things that matter about what's happening in the hood don't matter. And, and as a function of that, they've had disinflation, right? Uh, that they've been able to create. And that's a perfect system, right? If they can have disinflation and lean against it with more and more inflationary monetary policy, it's free. But it's not, right? There are costs and that cost is inequality. And we've borrowed from the future by, by taking that cost of inequality. And now, we're paying the piper. If we believe as a people that not all that matters is maximum, you know, maximizing GDP, but we want to maximize median outcomes for people, then it's a different system and, and it's not as efficient. Uh, it, it's more inflationary um, and it really puts the Fed in a difficult position. You alluded to this, but how much is the Fed having an impact here? You know, people have talked about the idea that obviously we have a lot of fixed rate mortgages that are not impacting People who do have capital are getting paid higher interest rates on that capital. So you could argue, you know, income is going up, which might be inflationary. Like when the Fed is increasing rates here, how much of an impact are they actually having on inflation? So there's two parts to that. One, they are having an effect, but their effect, their short-term effects and their long-term effects. Um, and there's a lag to those effects. Those effects aren't automatic. They had to take quite some time. Um, if they do QT, those effects are pretty, if they actually do liquidity removal, which there's been a debate whether or not they're actually doing that or not uh, on the bigger, in the bigger picture. 
But if they do that, there's a direct effect. Those, there's not much of a lag to that. That's a direct effect to assets, at least, which then, you know, translates into it pretty quickly into a wealth effect. Um, if they're lower increasing interest rates, which is our primary focus, right? That takes time. And that takes time because again, people have locked in rates and some of them are five years, some of them are 10 years, some of them are 30 year. And so a lot of, um, a lot of that, uh, it works at a lag. Now the costs are translating to more rents though, right? Because people can't now buy homes as easily and the cost to people is much higher to go buy a home, uh, millennials on down who haven't been able to buy a home. And so they're forced to rent. And there's a massive supply and demand imbalance in terms of sub supply of, of properties and, and people who want to, to need to rent. So they are feeling in terms of, of, of rents. And that is more of a structural issue, right? So they're not actually stopping inflation in that part. They're increasing inflation, which is kind of counterintuitive. So, um, a lot of the things that they do have, have unintended consequences and they are cyclically going to dampen kind of demand in the short term. And they are having success with that, but it's very uneven. And in some parts, they're actually making the structural inflation worse. And again, uh, there, we, we talked about it before, but you know, uh, the in higher interest rates, uh, and you know, tends to be correlated with, with more, uh, labor rights, right? Because uh, there's there's a little bit more power um, to to labor in those situations and deglobalization as well. And those are structurally inflationary. Uh, the more we take money away from corporations, which are the primary borrowers of money, uh, the less power and influence they have. And the more we send it to people, the more power and influence they have. And uh, at the end of the day, those people are, um, they want help for themselves and the protectionist policies um, that we're seeing. So again, it's a, it's a complicated picture. The reality is some of the things they're doing are cyclically going to, at some point, if you make money uh, unavailable, that is going to slow the economy, but it's not going to be evenly across uh, the economy. And in some parts, structurally, you're going to massively increase structural inflation. And I think that's what's happening. Where are you from a probabilistic standpoint on the soft landing thing? It seems like the market has basically discounted that. And it seems like that's the consensus view. And quite honestly, I'm kind of getting bored with like the soft landing term. So let's come up with something else here, something that we can get some buzz going around. Yeah, yeah. No landing is the, is there the name go. of the term. It, it, there is no landing happening. Uh, you know, there is still um, some some structural. And by the way, I want to be clear. It's not like things kind of land and soft. Things may cross at a certain point. It may, we may get a zero, you know, 2% inflationary uh, point. But that doesn't mean we've accomplished the mission. The problem there is that means you're heading into a, a recession. You may have uh, significant problems while structural inflation is still relatively firm and we've gotten it to 2%, but the economy is um, kind of uh, going in the wrong direction. Um, my view is that, no, we haven't had a landing. And as we've seen with labor, we continue to see, right? I mean, all the last three, everybody's saying soft landing. I'm still hearing it because markets are kind of doing well. You know, narrative follows price. But if you actually look at the CPI, if you look at the uh, unemployment numbers, they've all been hot for two and a half months. I mean, we produced 350,000 jobs last unemployment. That was a massive beat. How much people are still calling that a soft landing? When, when did we land? Like, what did we land on? I'm, I'm very confused. Unemployment's, you know, um, so, so uh, no, I think structural inflation is, is um, still very much alive and well. All the trends that are feeding into it. Uh, we see 
every day, right? More geopolitical conflict, more trade wars with, you know, China. Um, you know, we are uh, labor rights. You see a new kind of union deal or a new kind of strike happening um, every day. So those things um, are not going away. And we're, we're again, battling that um, by trying to slow the economy. There, it, we are getting slowness, like slowdowns is parts of the economy. Uh, but those parts are dangerous. The commercial real estate issue is going to rear its head. We're seeing it, uh, you know, in these banks, you know, in the run on, on some of these banks, we are seeing all the malinvestment rearing its head as they they raise interest rates. That will have an effect. That will slow the economy, but it'll be incredibly uneven. Um, and uh, and the question is, when that happens, in my opinion, in my opinion, the, the closest thing to, to what we're going into is stagflation, right? Not a soft landing. And that sounds very different, right? That sounds they're similar, but very different um, things. What do you think they're going to do, you know, given this no landing scenario? You know, on one hand, you could argue they should be keeping rates where they are, um, you know, given no landing. But on the other hand, they're going to be getting a lot of pressure to cut. The market expects them to cut. It's an election year. You know, what do you think they're actually going to do as, as the year plays out? I do think that uh, they are going to be easier than people expect, as we saw in December, um, uh, primarily for political reasons. Um, and uh, this isn't a conspiracy. I think the reality is, um, you know, there is, they can go one of two ways. They're in a box. They can either try and get inflation down or they can try and not have a recession and they have a choice, right? They have to make, they have to prioritize one over the other at this point. And it's a subtle decision, but the, the subtle decision ends up coming up to who's in control and, and who, you know, what do they want? longer term. And I think the reality is in the political season, um, they are going to continue to be overly stimulative. Um, so, you know, my view is that they probably will uh, cut. Uh, I don't think it's going to be quick. I think that they're going to have um, could be constrained. And we've been saying this for a while by hot numbers. Right. Um, and, and that the market is also going to continue to front run them, um, you know, uh, as, as until they actually do it. Um, you know, so my view is, is very much that, uh, they will cut and be easier than they should relative to the inflation that we're seeing. Um, and that markets will react positively. And that's primarily is because, uh, on, on baseline, we don't want a recession this year, right? Nobody wants a recession this year. It's a political year. Uh, all the powers that be, uh, but important to note, you know, it's not just political in terms of political powers, but. Powell's going to be out of a job come January, right? His, his, you know, what is his legacy? What does he, how does he want to leave this? Does he want to leave amidst a recession? Um, you know, what is, what are the political powers that he's more aligned with? Right. Um, you know, pretty, pretty clear Powell won't be the central bank president, uh, chairman, sorry, if, if Trump gets elected. So there is a, confluence of events here where politics does creep into all this. And that's been the case since uh, Arthur Burns, even before that, right? Um, uh, and, and nothing has changed. And so so do you think that eventually, maybe not, you know, this year, obviously, we probably continue to have a strong year. They're cutting, things are going well. Like eventually, we see a resurgence in inflation here? Yes. And I think that's what uh, the steeping of the yield curve is telling you as well. I think the easier we are now, um, and, you know, assuming the Fed does pivot and, and lower rates, um, I think that means worse inflation, ironically, later. 
And so um, I think the the market is wake up. And we were out in front of this, by the way. We've been talking about this for nine months. That this is what's going to happen into the slowdown in the economy that the Fed will be forced to pivot. And when they do, longer term yields will actually go higher or stay where they are while the front end comes down. And that is a irregular thing in the last 40 years. You know, when you go into recession, you usually see um, the whole curve shift down, right? Uh, and then the front, you know, kind of come down. Um, so we actually think that that the tenure will not only stay here, but potentially go even higher. And in an election year, if we're all being, sti- if we're all stimulating uh, and, and, you know, guess what fiscal is going to stimulate as well? Uh, what do you think is going to happen to supply and demand uh, given issuance and given all of um, kind of the liquidity pressures that we're seeing? So, so yeah, our view is very much that the, the 10 year on out actually stays firm, you know, actually yields go uh, flat to higher um, and that the front end of the curve does come down. And eventually that's actually the worst thing that can happen because that reinforces inflation. Right. We, we know the long-term yields are actually the biggest issue. Right? Long-term inflation expectations are the biggest issue for the Fed. Because if people start saying, oh, wow, inflation is structural, and if markets start saying that, uh, two things happen. One, you can borrow money at now cheaper interest rates to buy everything pinned down, right? which increases demand for those things and pushes the price. But two, it also brings forward demand in terms of inventories and consumption, right? Um, which is what happened in the 70s, which eventually then you get into a loop, which they tried to break and they couldn't in the 70s. And I think that's the one thing that's kind of been missing. I think uh, I think that is the next step in this scenario. And it's going to be made worse by um, pressures like uh, higher oil uh, due to geopolitical conflict, um, a higher cost of uh, labor due to geopolitical conflict, um, and a lot of inefficiency uh, you know, that we're seeing across. Uh, across the economy. So do you think the problem is not necessarily, say, like the 4% sticky inflation, but we could actually see a resurgence back to the types of levels we saw before here? I want to paint a picture. Everybody thinks about the 1970s. and I, I, I hate to always be focused on that, but that's the last period of inflation we have seen. And we haven't seen inflation in 40 years, structural inflation. So it's the best proxy. And again, there's a lot of differences. It, it, you know, I want to be clear. We are not 19, the 1970s exactly, but it rhymes. It rhymes. And what happened in the 1970s? Inflation went to, um, and the first bout went to six and a half percent or so in call it 1967, 68. And then the Fed came in and raised interest rates. And what happened? Inflation went down to 3%, right? Inflation came down to 3%. We were in a very mild recession for some time. They couldn't get it really to come down much more than that. And in 1972, after about a year and a half, two years of recession, they said, okay, we're going to cut rates. And what happened? That's when inflation went to 12%, right? Now that structural inflation had really become kind of embedded and the cyclical kind of pressures they were putting on it to kind of slow it were taken off and pushed the other way and inflation took off. Why? Because they were running a demand push economy. That was the Great Society program. We're doing tons of fiscal spending. We were in the Vietnam War. We're spending a lot on the Vietnam War. We had a lot of, uh, we had a new Cold War happening, a lot of trade wars and deglobalization. Any of this sound familiar? And so, started stimulating, inflation went to 12. Well, what happened? 74, we now had to deal with inflation. We, the Fed, 73, 74, the Fed started raising, you know, uh, raising interest rates again. 
trying to quash and, uh, squash inflation, they got it down to 6%. But they got it down to 6% amidst a really deep recession in 1974 and 1975. A very deep, ugly recession. And people, that was stagflation. That's what, in my opinion, is coming, stagflation. Maybe not to that extent, right? I don't want to kind of overstate this, right? But this stagflationary environment is where we are. And what do you do now when you're in a deep recession and, and inflation is, is still five and a half, six percent? We haven't seen that yet, right? But that's where we're heading in my opinion. And, um, or at least a four and a half, four percent inflation into a deep, deeper recession. Uh, that's, that's not now, that's the next step. Um, and at that point, all these structural effects become much more powerful and, and the long-term Yields and inflation expectations go up and the Fed loses control. The Fed loses control over those circumstances. And that's the Fed's nightmare. And it's happened before. And I think we're working towards, it's not happening overnight. It doesn't happen. It happens over the course of five, 10 years. Um, but I think that's where we're heading, unfortunately. And, uh, and the only way to work our ways through this, there is no solution except for paying back you know, what we dealt, the, the, what we've, what we've spent in a sense, um, into this period, um, we need a rebalancing, um, in a sense. And if we're rebalancing wealth inequality, and that's our political focus, and we're going to do protectionism and onshoring and rebuild our economy in that sense, um, these are the costs that we have to pay. And it takes time. You mentioned a lot of the similarities with the seventies. I'm just wondering, do you think there's some major differences to investors should keep in mind as they kind of look at like how this might play out relative to how that played out? Significant differences, two in, par in particular that I would highlight. One um, is the first one everybody else will highlight. I think the other one is more kind of something we've been talking about, but the debt, right? Like we had our debt to GDP is way higher, right? And that forces a different reaction function for um, the Federal Reserve and for government broadly. I'm in the minority on that, on that piece in the sense that I don't think that's as critical. I, it will affect policy. It will affect political dialogue. It, it, it will uh, play a role in markets. It will be something, a narrative that everybody's talking about. We're already starting to hear it. But in my view, it will, that will lead to a, some type of a debt jubilee, ultimately. I think, uh, it could be a monetization. It could be the Fed literally hitting a button and just doing a massive amount of QE and buying all of the uh, treasuries and then, you know, hitting the button and making it disappear. Um, but something along those lines, I know that sounds dramatic, is kind of where that leads. Um, and in my opinion, that doesn't actually affect, it doesn't make the dollar collapse. And, you know, everybody thinks that's the case. Everybody thinks that's a massive, massive negative for the U.S. and that they won't be able to continue to, to deal with that and, and, you know, create all this debt. My view is actually similar to when we, when Nixon took us off of the gold standard, which was essentially a debt jubilee, right? That the dollar will get stronger in that process. You know, the second our debt to GDP just magically drops because we get rid of it, guess what? That's a positive for the dollar and the positive, you know, that, that concern now is, is gone. That's what happened when we got taken off the gold standard. At first there was a panic. People thought, oh, the dollar will collapse. But once they realize that the value of the currency is really a function of power and nothing else, right, then the dollar got stronger. And I think that's what will eventually happen and why this debt issue is not as big an issue as people expect, because we can ultimately uh, get rid of our debt. Uh, it will be an ugly episode of it and it'll be volatile. But, um, and that sounds Pollyannish, but that's the truth. There's, there is no, we're 80% of, you know, uh, 
you know, global uh, economic development, we are, uh, you know, 95%, 92%, I think, of, of trade happens in the dollar. Uh, we have the biggest military, yada, 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 right? And uh, we're just not, there's, there's nobody who's an alternative. And if a couple of years ago, everybody was like, well, China, well, here we are, right? Take a look at what's happening there. So <clears throat> my view is that's not the biggest problem, but that will be the dialogue. That, that's what's different this time and, and will be a big issue along the way. I don't think it ultimately matters. The bigger issue, ironically, which nobody's talking about is structured markets, right? There were no derivatives in the 1970s. Market structure was very, very different. And that sounds like, oh, why is, come on, you just talked about global debt and now you're talking about something small like structured product. It's way bigger than people understand. Um, what structured products and, and derivatives broadly allow people to do is they allow them to, instead of just go to the bond market and take their money out of equities into the bond market, they allow them to take money out of the equity market and put it in bonds and still take risk with that, those assets. When you do, when, you know, how does that work? Derivatives were created for primarily capital efficiency. You don't buy an asset when you buy a derivative. If you buy a future, I don't have to put up the money. I just have to put up margin capital, just enough to make sure I don't, if I lose money, that I cover that risk. And that capital efficiency means, whether it's options or futures, that you can take that, that money that you're getting, put into T-bills, get 5.5%, and then structure a yield with that collateral on top of that. And so there's a massive growth in structured product demand. And by the way, everybody thinks this is new. It's not new. It's new relative to inflation here in the U.S., but if you look in Asia, structured products in some countries are dramatically bigger than the equity market. That's how big they are. And they define volatility. They define market action. People are, this is foreign to people here, right? But anybody in the vol space knows this is not a foreign small thing. Um, volatility in the Korean market, South Korea, was crushed for decades because mom and pop primarily didn't invest in equities. They invested in structured products. After corner five and dime. And that had a dramatic effect on implied volatility and support broadly for assets. That's what we're beginning to see here. And I think the growth of the structured product business is going to really provide liquidity back to equities and risk assets broadly that hasn't been there in past market cycles and will create a very different reaction function to market specifically as it relates to inflation and the flows that come as a function of inflation. And again, we can dive into, into that a bit more, but you know, again, in, in past cycles in the 1970s, money came out of the equity market and into the bond market. Cause if you could get five, 10% yields, you know, why would you invest in the equity market? And that really crushed multiples, right? Um, now you're getting people going into the bond market, but they're also a big chunk of them are also starting to use that collateral, at least the, the bigger players and, and those that are more sophisticated to go then layer that collateral, those T-bills to make more yield in some form or another. And that tends to be vault compressing and send money liquidity back into a very stabilizing, particularly in the middle of the market in the indexes back into uh, provide stability and support and, and compress vault. Um, that's what le has led to this historic dispersion trade that's really started uh, in 2017. It just continues to go in one direction. Um, but uh, I think we will continue to see that. And I think that will change outcomes somewhat, um, uh, you know, going forward. What do you think the risk of these structured products is 
you know, I've learned, I don't know a ton about this kind of stuff, but I've learned in anything in the markets when anything seems like a, you know, a no brainer, it's an obvious thing to do. You know, it can go on for a very long time, but eventually something bad typically happens. So do, do you think there's a major risk like of these things to the market? Yes, there is. They're ball dampening here locally, right? Uh, and what I mean locally, and they're not levered, right? These are not levered trades for the most part. They're distributed, you know, uh, across the market in uh, in a way that that is not like a long-term capital management or an you know, XIV uh, where all this risk is concentrated in one thing that can then explode and really affect everything. It's just a lot of other people delevering de from the equity market into a product that is equally low leverage but non-correlated. Um, the, the reality is if, if this goes on long enough, eventually people start taking silly risk, right? At some point, if everybody out there says, well, vol supplied, nothing can go wrong. I'm going to sell more vol and I'm going to keep selling vol. Then it gets concentrated in a fund or a place that's doing this and doing it, taking um, kind of risk. So it creates this kind of moral hazard, I guess, right? which I think can be very dangerous eventually. Nothing goes on forever, right? And eventually the risk just gets too big and concentrated somewhere else. The other problem with them, so that's number one. Um, number two, look at China. You may have heard about all the autocallables and what's happening in China right now, but there's a big enough existential issue in China that even all the structured product writing and everything doesn't matter, right? That's so big, they're having uh, massive issues. That the economy, that, that, the, that the market is actually, had already started a massive decline and actually all these structured products are accelerating and making it worse now. Um, and, and because banks have to hold them and they're nonlinear, these aren't, they have breaking points and they're hard to hedge for banks. So banks are being forced into situations where they become sellers of the market and actually as you approach them, the hedging of them is is very, very uh, dangerous uh, and structurally can create massive losses in certain portfolios. But banks are where that risk ends up being. And so banks already have a tail on them just by definition, right? That bank almost by definition is a Ponzi scheme. Like it's a levered, you have a very small amount of capital leveraged, right? Um, uh, underneath the hood. So there's always a massive tail on banks. And now there are all these assets sitting on, you know, these structured products are primarily being issued by banks. And a lot of them are sitting on their, their, um, their balance sheets. They're offsetting that with more vanilla options, right? Other things so they can hedge it, which works quite well until you get really close to those structured products and where the issuance primarily is and strikes and other things. And then it starts to become this massive, like, oh, mismatched hedge in the equity market, you know, the, the options of all market versus what the structured products actually look like under the hood. And can can, cre can create really dangerous concentrated risk at, at certain banks that are holding those structured products. So yes, the answer is it's not a free lunch. Never is, like you said. But those risks really reside in two places, which is one, just the overarching, hey, the more you dampen volatility at some point, it's a moral hazard and people just keep selling it till it gets to a point where the potential energy gets worse and that risk gets concentrated. But two, also, once a move actually can break out of this, it's harder to do. But once it can break out of this, kind of ball compressed environment, at some point there's enough mismatch between how banks hedges that there can be a problem at the core banks uh, in these structured products uh, that sit on banks. And, and let's earmark this and remember this because if and when this happens, I want to point back to this, but it almost always does happen. And again, just look at what's happening in China right now. 
these snowball like auto callables are playing a significant role in some of the decline that they're seeing there right now. Can I just ask, uh, just, uh, yeah, can I just ask like a basic question? We run very plain vanilla standard long only strategy. So this idea is, you know, outside of our area of expertise or how we run money. But so with the structured product, let's say you have an, an investor, million dollar portfolio that has a 60-40 stock bond allocation. So it, with the structured product, would that be like, for the bond portion, that would be roughly $400,000. They could put up, you know, some s small portion of that to get the derivative exposure that would effectively be something like a 40% bond position. And then that uh, extra capital comes back into the equity sleeve. Let's put it this way. You can actually buy a structured product from the bank that does essentially what you're saying, or you can, people are more sophisticated can structure it themselves, kind of mm -hmm. what you're implying. Um, but the, the core idea here is a derivative allows you to get that T-bill rate and then use that T-bill that you have now as collateral to take risk. I see. And that risk you can take in several different ways. Anything that's a derivative will demand collaterals, some proof, some good collateral, which a T-bill is, that you can repay at a loss if it were to happen. And there's value to that, right? So the point is a T-bill is risk-free and you can get that risk-free rate, right? And then layer on top of it, some risk. Right? And that because the risk you can take, there are all kinds of risks you can take that are non, that are not market risk, right? You could go sell very low leverage, you could go sell a 20% out of the money, 25% out of the money, whatever percent you want out of the money, put a year out or two years out, right? And you could go do something similar on the call side. Make it as wide as you want. This is a very basic example. There's a bunch of other things that you could do, but, and maybe that, you know, that one year uh, strangle you sell, very low leverage, but by that I mean one-to-one, -one, meaning uh, cash secured puts, cash secured calls. Maybe that yields two and a half percent. No, guess what? Now I'm not making five and a half. I'm making eight percent, and I'm completely non-correlated. As long as the market doesn't go down more than twenty-five percent or up more than twenty-five percent, I'm going to make that money. And if it does go up more, I only lose you know one percent for every one percent over that the market goes up, and it's coming out of what I've already that eight percent I'm already making. So you have a big cushion. These things are very appealing in a world where you know eight percent per year, right? non-correlated in a world where we don't know, is the market going to be down 20% this year or is it going to be up? We have less confidence in that based on a lot of the factors we, we're, we're talking about based on valuations. It, it's a pretty appealing uh, value proposition. Um, and the point here is that you'll go higher, right? Those only go higher, right? And they get to, you get to get that T-bill rate, but still take risk. That's non-correlated. That's the value proposition. And again, I, you can't, blame uh, Joe Asset Advisor or mom and pop for saying, wait, I don't want to be 100% beta to this market, but I still want that 8% yield and I'm willing to take that extra risk. This is a ba basic example. There are other ways to go about this or other non-correlated kind of, I mean, imagine now that you're stacking a bunch of diversified bets um, uh, instead of just 25% out, 25% out in different markets in different ways, right? So you're a bit more diversified on that yield and now your risk goes down to one event or another but you're still getting a non-correlated return of eight, eight and a half, nine, nine and a half, 10%, right? Um, sounds pretty interesting.
hopefully that another thing explains. Oh, Thank you. You know, yeah. another thing that I, I think sort of along similar lines, but uh, has gone on a lot since we last talked to you is this zero DTE options idea. Um, you know, when, when we last talked to you, it, it was a thing, but it was not the thing that it is right now. Um, it, it's risen a lot, and I'm wondering if you could, if we could just get your take on that as well. I mean, do you see that? as a big risk to the market? I mean, it seems like as an outsider, like the use of those has gone up dramatically. Do, do you see some sort of major risk to the market associated with that? So it's nuanced, right? Uh, everybody wants uh, black or white, right? It's nuanced. In some ways it's uh, better, less risky. In other ways, it's significantly more risky. Um, let's walk, talk about how Let's start with the, the why it's less risky first, because that's like the, the less, uh, the, the, the conversation my people aren't having. If you look at what happened with derivatives in the past in terms of causing major issues, it tends to be uh, there's a liquidity imbalance, right? Somebody gets short, think long-term capital management. What, what are the first two you know, words there, or the first word there, long-term, right? Um, the opposite of zero DT. Why was long-term capital management problem? Because they were based, they were selling vol one, two, three years out. And when they had to come back and buy it, they couldn't wait right till it expired. They couldn't wait till it, go, it went away. They were stuck in a position that was illiquid. And at that point, much like when oil can go to negative 30, it doesn't matter what it's worth or not worth. The reality is, uh, a value of an asset that's a liquid can go to any price as long as there is an imbalance of supply and demand. So when you're trading options and derivatives that are long dated, and by the way, 2008 was a similar story. 2008, part of what caused the, the structural issues we saw is 10-year long-term variant swaps, which are barely traded now because of the crisis that we saw underneath the hood there, went to six, a 60 implied volatility. 10-year implied volatility was priced at 60%. Think about that. Think about that. 10-year implied volatility. The, the assumption was that we were going to be at a 60% vol for 10, the next 10 years. Illogical. It's like oil going to you know, negative 30. It doesn't make sense. It was a function of liquidation. People were so broken that they had to cover at absurd prices. So long-term derivatives represent a, a leveraged problem in an illiquid market. Zero DT doesn't have that problem. Zero DT, you put them on today, they're gone tomorrow, right? And if the market crashes because of something, guess what? The next day, nobody's going to sell it because they don't want to take that risk, right? So that's the positive. You know, volume moving from longer term to shorter term means there's less uh, liquidity risk past one day. Right? Now, let's talk about the risks. The risks are, it's the most powerful moment. The gamma on it is so massive on zero days to expiration. Never mind zero days to expiration, one hour, two hour options, like anything can happen. Like uh, a, a, a dramatic move in a very short period of time can create massive losses very quickly. And because it's so concentrated, there is no way to hedge that part of the distribution other than to hedge it with zero DTE. Think of it as, think of it as the, the GameStop and meme name issue we saw. What we saw again there is prices, crazy things, absurd things could happen, right? In a very short period of time, because it represented a place on the distribution of that a market maker, an entity trying to absorb that risk can't hedge. 
the only way to hedge GameStop is to hedge it with GameStop. The only way to hedge, you know, these meme names was to hedge it with themselves. They have no correlation to other names. Again, a, a bit of a, a reach in terms of a metaphor, but a similar idea. Zero DT, you can only hedge with zero DT, which creates a loop. I was at um, the, uh, the CBOE's risk management conference earlier or late last year in October. And this was a big topic, obviously. And they put the biggest market makers, several of them on stage for a conversation about zero DT. And in the last, and in the last set of questions, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, that's a market maker, I won't name him here, is, uh, you know, reached, stood up and asked a question. He said, how in the world do you guys hedge this risk? And I kind of got quiet. They said, each of them agreed. We hedge them with other zero DT. So when you see the SIBO come out with, look, it's balanced. The market in zero DT is very balanced, right? The, the market makers are flat. Look, consistently, there's not a risk here. There's not an imbalance. It's because they're hedging zero DT with zero DT. They have to be balanced. Now, why is that a risk? Because when you're in a loop, in a, in a, in a closed loop, where you can't lay off the risk anywhere else, what happens if somebody comes in tomorrow, and we've seen this already, it happened a little earlier this year, there was a relatively small trade that happened in a big block that took all the market makers out of some, you know, near out of the money uh, puts. And what that did is it created a cascade. And from, we, we were sitting there very placidly, I can forget what the date was, about a month ago, sitting very placidly all day. And the next thing you knew, we were down almost 2% based on one order. Because everybody had to go buy back that gamma and that gamma loop creates a cascade, which can really feed on itself. Now imagine a liquid scenario where I come in and I decide, hey, look, this market's vulnerable. I'm going to go buy 5,000 out of the money puts on the offer, above the offer, just take them all. And there's nobody to, to now provide other than the market makers themselves who are short, right? Liquidity for those same options to buy them back. What does that do? That creates a massive short-term, a bit, you know, gamma squeeze in the market. So you can create a massive, there's structurally a risk here that you can create a massive squeeze in, in terms of gamma in a short-term move that can be very dangerous. It accelerates the probability of a one-day crash. The odds of that are much higher now that these are, these are uh, you know, structurally in the market. But in terms of longer structural issues, the day that after that crash, and that could feed onto other problems in the market and create other bigger issues that are not in zero DT. But it's, again, a different risk and a different uh, reality. The last thing I'll say is regulators have not caught up to the amount of size and uh, structure of these zero DTEs. This is the other issue. You may have heard me talk about this. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the regulatory requirements for zero DTE um, are just not, they're just now starting to even charge any margin on these because the uh, margin itself was, was daily. You could trade zero DT and never post margin. Now, no clearing entity like a bank or entity is going to, you know, let you come in with zero dollars and trade these things and not be mindful of your risk. Uh, I would, I would think, but it does create a, again a moral hazard where people will, oh well, this big customer, you know, if I can give him slightly better, like not check his margin too often, I make a lot of money and get to that, and instead of going the money, you know, the business going to so and so. Again, we've seen this with plenty of hedge funds, right? Uh, get, I won't, you know, name all, all all the names that we we all know, but but it, again, if regulators don't force a requirement, and you leave it up to just the clearinghouses to do that, 
um, inevitably that still creates massive risk. So that is another issue that I think uh, that will be addressed. Regulators are kind of on the case. They're just moving very slow. There's a, uh, there's a, I'm sure there's many pieces, but if, if listeners, there's a Reuters piece titled zero day options, just a, you know, a factor in U.S. stock volatility, but this is from December 21st. Um, so I think that's the, that the, was the you know, that, yeah. that, that was the date or the week yeah. somewhere in there. So if investors, investors that are listening, want to kind of go and, and, um, uh, learn more about what you're referencing, that's, that's the time period in there. What you were getting at is, is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is to some extent, you'd think this would be isolated to one day. But I also was wondering, like, if you got some sort of major move up or down on that day, would that affect, you know, dealer flows associated with options further out in the future, and it could cascade beyond the day? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but that's kind of the thing I was thinking about a lot. Yes, it can. It can. But, I, but what we're seeing is a significant decrease in some of those options and the, and the volume has more or less moved to zero DTE. So there's less, my point is less leverage in the longer dated stuff. Um, but again, to your point, uh, yes, once you, if you were to get a 87 style crash, right? Yes, that's going to have knock on effects in all kinds of other assets and all other kinds of places. And then, yeah, zero DTE may not be the problem after that. It may have been the, the spark, um, but then the problem is uh, kind of brought to the forefront um, in lots of other places. Just a couple more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I, I think your followers would kill me if I didn't at least ask for some crumbs um, <laughs> when we have you on. Um, you know, we just got through a period in January, which was a potential window of weakness, and we survived that okay. What are you seeing going forward as we head into, you know, the middle of the year? Yeah, so... Um, the window of weakness, right? It's like, uh, it, it's, it's so simple. You just kind of short, short the market when that window of weakness comes, right? It's obviously not that simple, right? Uh, and this is what I always try and educate on. It's, it's a time when certain positive flows, right, are absent. It doesn't mean the market goes down in that period. It's just a lot of the, some of these structural, um, positive flows that support against the downside. Now, go away. Now that doesn't mean you're going to crash, right? It does, it's not like there's a bunch of selling pressure. It's, it's not the same thing as, oh, there's a bunch of selling that's happening. Um, and so important to note that when we entered this January period, that vol was very well supplied, um, that there, uh, had also just been a pivot, which, you know, back in December, early December, uh, nobody really foresaw. We definitely didn't where the Fed had now, uh, expected all of a sudden to to provide massive, uh, you know, stimulus uh, and, and reverse, you know, reverse some of their, the views in the market of, of how much liquidity they would be providing. So we got to early January or mid January, and we were pretty public coming into that, that look, uh, you kind of, you kind of have to look for it and realize that this is coming. But in the context of that, think about what the other flows are. And, uh, at that point it became pretty clear to us that, that the, the more likely scenario was was February, if we were going to get a decline at all, right? This is an election year. We've said this from the beginning. If this, if this is the, this is the chance for the market to take its, to, to, to take a little tumble, um, to pay back the 25% rally we've seen in three months. Right. Um, and, uh, if it doesn't happen, right. Um, you know, you have to be prepared for something much more parabolic to the upside this year. Um, and, and it's important to know, and I've said this before, what you know about these structured flows doesn't just tell you 
imagine you have, you know, 40, 50% of the picture, call it 40% of the picture of structural flows. And you don't know what 60% of the flows are, right? If you don't know what 60% of the flows are, but you know what the 40% are, other people have no idea, right? What does that do? That changes the probability distribution of what can happen because you know what 40% of the, the flows are. But it also tells you about the 60% you don't know based on what's happening in the context of the 40% that you do know, right? So the fact that the market's been this strong, right, in the context of some of these windows, you know, in this window in particular, I think tells you a lot about the liquidity circumstances and what's happening otherwise. Um, again, we tend to see this type of movement before a reversal, by the way. So I think, you know, this market of ball up that we've been calling for, we have seen uh, starting in mid-January. That's when we said, look, be very proactive with being long volatility uh, because any move up from here would also be more likely market up ball up, which is true, which is what we've seen. So you've had a bit of an edge, uh, you know, the, the way to bet on this before a crash comes, think about 99. I got started in the business in 98. One of the first things I experienced in 99 is massive volatility increases into rallies. And the way the tech bubble burst, right? And we've seen this in other, whether it's 08 or, um, you know, other, other declines in the past, is it's not just important to squeeze out short interest so the speed of the move start getting more accelerated towards the top, right? Because people start betting against saying, this is crazy, you know, these values are too high, the market needs to come down or under, uh, under allocated. So that creates a bit less supply and, you know, uh, supply and the market can, can move very quickly to the upside. But it also, because volatility starts increasing the upside, and we're sliding historically to lower balls, like these, uh, these calls are priced on lower balls, it can unpin implied volatility, right? It can create a scenario where, where there's enough people willing to say, well, if ball keeps going up on the upside, why wouldn't I be long fall? And they keep buying ball and it unpins. And that's what we're starting to see, by the way. Um, you know, we're, uh, the longer term ball has started to perk up quite a bit. And uh, we're starting to see that in uh, May, June, July, August, September options are really maintaining their value of anything going up in terms of implied volatility. And that can create a scenario where the market becomes less pinned and, and allows for a decline in market. So I actually think the market moves and what we've seen uh, broadly in the last several weeks are very supportive of a, of a, of a view that come mid-February that we could, you know, the probabilities are increasing of, of a decent decline. I think if we get up near that the higher end of, of what we were kind of expecting 50 50 50 100 or so in the s p uh maybe even a, you know a, a, a flash quick move up above that and then kind of back down especially if we're entering that window where things are weakness um it could be you know weak this could be you know the shot that you that people have been looking for to kind of short it until then until february 14th you really can't get out in front of this and i've been very clear about that this is not the type of market you want to short um, until you get the sign that um, that things are really turning in that window. Um, and and again, if it doesn't come, right, if it doesn't come and it doesn't work, you know, if you're not getting the ch checking the boxes, what needs to happen beforehand, um, you can't just wait, right? You have to you have to be very constructive given the liquidity circumstances that are being, you know, pushed in, into the market otherwise. And, you know, given, you know, it's an election year, the amount of coming uh, monetary and fiscal support that we're likely to see. Yeah, what you, what you just said, you know, you use that word probability a ton 
And I think that's one of the biggest lessons people like us who are outside of the options world can learn from people who are inside the options world. You know, you kind of mentioned when you talk about window of weakness, everybody's like, just short the market, you know, it's going down. Like, you're not thinking that way. You're thinking about a probability distribution of a bunch of different outcomes that could happen. And you're thinking about weakness as a little bit higher in that probability distribution than it normally would be. And I think that's something all of us as investors, you know, whether we live in that short-term world or not, can learn from, you know, somebody who understands options is this idea that everything is sort of a probability distribution of potential outcomes in the future. Jack, 110%, if I can make a point, like on every conversation I have, it's that one point. Um, there is a significant opportunity in prediction when, when you're predicting probability distributions. It is much harder to predict up-down, right? What I can tell you very often is, okay, the probability has gone from normal to right, very right distributed, but fat left tail. The expected return may not have changed, right? And to your average person, they'd be like, well, you said it was right distributed. You said we're going up. Yes, the probability that is a higher percentage of going up, but if you go down, it's going to be a big fat tail, right? And that type of a setup allows, if in the options market, you can take those bets and make high conviction probability bets that are in line with that based on the distributions. Right? So you can make a lot of money on that prediction and that's easier to do. But that doesn't mean in the window of weakness that you just go flat long. Yes, the high, it's a higher percent winning rate of going long. But if it goes down, it's going to be a massive fat left tail and you're going to lose a lot of money, right? In that scenario, what you should do, and this is a good example for February into March, right? March is a massive open interest of options uh, uh, because of structured products tied to quarterly expirations. That's part of why we saw the massive tail in 2020 from the day after February expiration to the day after March OPEX, right? Very, I think we're the only people that ever talk about this, that Everybody talks about COVID and the market crash, but nobody talks about the fact that it was literally to the day of the options expiration cycle for March. And the reason was is because all of that open interest in March, we knew about COVID in late December, early January. We topped, you know, on the day of February OPEX and crash were exactly a one option cycle, right? And then V'd back up. Not a coincidence, right? And, and the distribution there was very, if we hadn't crashed there, the market was likely to continue to push higher because there were all Davana and charm flows that come back as a function of the decay of all those puts in the market for, for, for dealers. But given that the move accelerated to the downside and there was a big enough impetus, the amount of gamma in those took over and created a massive liquidation. And that's the type of structure that happens during these big open interest, big, um, these big expirations where there's lots of uh, risk uh, that dealers are holding can become more right distributed with a fat left tail. And so the trade wouldn't have been in that window of weakness there, right? Uh, to necessarily short it or go long. It would be to, you know, to, to, uh, to, to wait, you know, buy a put to, to capture that tail and be long stock and to be long volatility for that, uh, that, that move. And once the market started accelerating into it and the risk was clearly there to, to go short into it, really. Right. And to, and to let your, your shorts run. Um, but if you had gone a week, week and a half through that Feb expiration and it hadn't happened, I'm telling you, I know it sounds crazy, but that COVID crash never would have happened the way it did. The path would have been very different, which means that the reaction function of government would have been different too, which is crazy. These derivatives and the market reaction are so much tied in the short term to, to these cycles and these periods. And it seems random to people. It's not random. The, 
the realities, the structural realities are there. I can tell you about the probabilities, but the path, you know, will depend on several other things and other liquidity factors. I love that point about probabilities. It's so important um, when thinking about all different types of investing. And I, and, I, and I think it relates to sort of the last two questions that we wanted to ask. And these are sort of tied at the hip um, in that when you're, when you think about the next few years and the markets, what would you say are you most concerned about? And then what would you say you're most optimistic about? Two sides of the same coin. I'm going to give you one answer to that, both positive and negative. My biggest fear, and I wouldn't say the next two years, I'd say really the next five to 10 years, I'm going to give you a bigger, longer time frame, is that we're entering a period of significant deglobalization and geopolitical conflict. I can't understate this, right? China and the U.S., bifurcating the way they are is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. We're likely to go, we're already at war, right? Question is how hot will it get? Um, and, uh, and that, that's not just uh, traditional war, cyber warfare. It's, uh, you know, again, COVID is a clue to other types of warfare, right? It sounds scary and almost unbelievable to people that we can enter a period of that kind of geopolitical conflict, but that's what's happening. And the reasons are not just how people feel. It's this populism. It's this protectionism. It's this decision by us as a people to America first, right? And I get it and I understand why, but that reaction function is not changing. And to the extent it doesn't change, that creates a massive problem in the short term. But crisis, and this is the other side of that coin, crisis by definition is necessary. What the Federal Reserve, you know, our founding fathers would be turning in their graves if they were here, that we created this extra governmental group that is in charge of the economy called the Federal Reserve. We created it because we wanted to smooth out the business cycle. Why do we have all these booms and busts when we could just fix them? It's all about the unintended consequences. If you stop burning the underbrush, if you don't allow for crises to happen, what you get is a, a sterile government, right? That doesn't have a mandate ever because nobody ever has a crisis to unite people together to pass and reform the system. And what we've done is we've created a political system here in the U.S. where nothing gets passed and nothing gets done and everybody goes to other sides and we haven't had reform. And what that does in the absence of reform is create entropy. Citizens United, uh, gerrymandering, go down the list. The system is broken and it's corrupt at this point. And it is that way because we haven't had a crisis. We haven't had anything that forces people to come together and unite to say, hey, we have to fix this. And so this potential risk of a real forest fire is bigger than it's ever been. And we're going to have a big force. That's where we are. I said I'd be optimistic. A forest fire means we can reset, reform, and rebuild. And I think if you look at the last two times we had massive forest fires, whether you think about the 30s and 40s, right, the greatest generation, 
If you think about the 1960s and 70s, and you think about all of the reform and the changes that happened during that time, during both of those times, you ask anybody from either of those generations, they will tell you they thought the world was coming apart at the seams. If you look at what's happening now, they laugh. You think things are bad now. You should have been there in the 1930s and 40s, right? You should have been there in the 1960s. But because of those crises, our government and our, our system became stronger made, as a people came together and created new uh, reforms and, and things that needed to happen, right, to continue on for the next 40 years. And it's what laid the groundwork for the booms that we've had. So the most optimistic thing is that a crisis is coming and that we need it. And if we don't have it, the problems will be way more existential down. Impactful stuff, Jim. Really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Great being here, guys. Thanks for having me back. Look forward to many more. Thank you. Be well. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.